Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. Uh, I, even though I wrote down my apology to Wisconsin, uh, now that we're going to be in the state of Wisconsin, I feel like I should apologize again. I am so sorry that I messed up with saying the Upper Peninsula of Michigan was attached to Minnesota. I'm just bad with geography. Apology accepted. Oh, so you're speaking for all of Wisconsin. That's great. I, I've been entrusted with the power. You're not wearing a cheese hat. Cheese isn't in my hat. It's in my heart. Okay, Literally. that was the right response. Literally. Well, as you may have guessed, we're in Wisconsin this week. <laughs> it's true. Wisconsin. I think, uh, speaking of cheese, I always think of cheese when I think of Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and apparently that's very warranted. Wisconsin has over like a 10,000 registered dairy farms, which is crazy to me. That makes sense, though. Like, when I think of dairy, I think of Wisconsin, and I think of California. Yeah. For those California cheeses. Cows are happy cows make happy oh, cheese. Oh, those horrible commercials. <laughs> but Wisconsin does produce, like, 13% of the country's milk and also, like, a quarter of the nation's cheese. So wow. if you're slicing into some Colby Jack or Munster, it's probably from Wisconsin. Yeah. Munster with an E, right? American Munster? I, I have no freaking clue. I don't... I mean, I've eaten it before, but it's not one that I buy a lot. Oh, we talk about cheeses a lot in my house. Yeah, I mean, I do love cheese, of course. Like, if you look at our grocery list at any given week, there's just something called fancy bitch cheese. Fancy bitch cheese. And that's just when we wander through the cheese section of the grocery store and go, what is this? I've never had it. It looks fancy. Well, bitch, there, put it in the cart. There was that one night when I was over your house, and you had just been on a wine tour, and we had like three bottles of wine, and each time you're like, now this wine is a blah, 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 with notes of blah, blah, blah. Here's the cheese And for then it. when I got hungry, you were like, now this cheese. <laughs> like I said, fancy bitch cheese. Uh, what else about Wisconsin? Uh, they have fun accents. They do have fun. They do have fun accents. Which is kind of like all over the Midwest. But. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I enjoyed Wisconsin when I went there. Yeah. It was a very, very nice place. I've never been to any of the Midwestern states. Oh, I recommend Wisconsin. Yeah. Okay. It's a cool place. It's If you're in northern Wisconsin, you're pretty close to like Minneapolis. So. All right. I enjoyed that. Uh, the name Wisconsin apparently comes from the Wisconsin River. Makes sense. And it's a. You know, it had to be that or the other way around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And the river is from a name that the Algonquin-speaking tribes in the region had. It was called Miskusing, which I guess if you translate it into English, that's like Wisconsin. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, you could tell it was definitely... In Native yeah, American. exactly. Just like, like Milwaukee sounds incredibly Native yes, American. Yes, Apparently, too, the name Wisconsin, its original origin and in like indigenous languages, it's probably not Algonquin. It's yeah. From like the Miami people, but they think that it translates to "it lies red," which is perfect theme for our podcast. Oh, absolutely! But as opposed to you know the river running bloody or anything, they're just talking about the red sandstone formations that are all over the Wisconsin River. I figured as much. So, but it lies red. I'm like, oh, they can't a- all have bubbling sulfur like red boiling springs. That's <laughs> true. Speaking of Milwaukee, that is apparently also known as the Brew City. Okay, so lots of beer. Yeah, apparently it was home to four of the world's largest brewery at one point, Miller, Pabst, Blatz, and Schlitz. Okay, and they're probably all owned by the same freaking people because all beer is like owned by like five companies or yeah, something. Yeah, nowadays, unless it's like a craft brewery, which Milwaukee yeah. does have a pretty banging craft brewery scene. But, I'm sure they do. But they only have Miller still operating out of the city. I feel like Milwaukee is like a place for hipsters now too, sort of like... 
anywhere in the state of Washington. I feel like it's always <laughs> been hip, though. I watched Laverne and Shirley. Well, that I know is how true. cool Milwaukee is. <laughs> what other fun facts do I have about Wisconsin? It borders two of the Great Lakes, of course, Lake Michigan and Lake Superior. And it has as many inland lakes, if not more, than Minnesota. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It has more square miles of water than pretty much any other state except for Alaska, Michigan, and Florida. So, yeah. I I do think of friends who I know in Wisconsin who uh, are always like summertime is like everybody's at the lake. Yeah. Like, I get it. I get it. I can see it because, again, very, very near Great Lakes. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not quite as much as Michigan, but still. (laughs) I feel like you're going to enjoy these next couple of facts I have for you. Okay. So, southern Wisconsin is filled with earthen burial effigy mounds created by Native American tribes more than a thousand years ago. Interesting. I didn't know that. I think when I picture in my head, like, the burial mounds you learn about in, like, world history, it's always, to me, on the Great Plains. Yeah. But I guess more so Wisconsin. Um, There's, like, thousands of these effigy mounds, especially in southern Wisconsin, although they are rapidly being destroyed by just urban development and farming practices. So only about 20% of them are still around. Great. Well, you know, do you want hauntings? Because that's how we get hauntings, people. That popcorn is haunted. You pop it in your house and (laughs) suddenly you got ghosts. As if the sound wasn't scary enough for some people. (laughs) This I thought was super delightful. Apparently, the troll capital of the world is in Wisconsin. What? Mm Mm-hmm. It's true. There's a village called Mount Horeb in Wisconsin, where about 75% of the population is of Norwegian descent. And to celebrate that, they have a large main street that they've transformed into the quote-unquote trollway. And it's peppered with these like large statues of trolls from Nordic folklore. Okay. And like you can shop on different places in main street and buy mem- troll memorabilia in the gift shops and it's kind of like their their thing as soon as you said norwegian i was like okay i think i get it now yep yep, <laughs> yep those trolls and i mean all of the midwest is heavily populated by people of scandinavian descent exactly so. makes perfect sense but yeah troll capital of the world wisconsin and my last fun fact was one that i was absolutely flabbergasted by okay now i'm curious and i went down this rabbit hole about modern life Green Bay, Wisconsin. It's often called the toilet paper capital of the world. Huh. And I was like, okay. Well, I guess that's where everyone should go if we have another toilet paper shortage. Exactly. Uh, But I guess it earned this nickname uh, back in 1935 when Northern Paper, which is the predecessor of Quilted Northern, Mm -hmm. which is based in Green Bay, released the first splinter-free toilet paper splinter free splinter free that is disturbing and scary and i don't like it and i was like how is this a thing internet tell me how this is a thing less splinters in your asshole than before (laughs) no i know i was like oh my god i am living in the best modern age well do you remember donald duck orange juice i'm sure it's still around but a little bit uh it was like on their cans it used to say um like the orange juice brand with the least amount of rat hairs what yeah thank god it wasn't mickey mouse brand orange juice it's like oh <laughs> okay but i mean you work in a factory with food there's gonna be things like bugs and rats yeah. and mice creepy gross All it's right. things that you don't want to think about but guess what guys they're a thing on that delightful note it is our job to scare you on this <laughs> podcast always look when you're wiping and <laughs> yeah avoid those splinters avoid those splinters
So that's that's all of my fun facts for Wisconsin. All righty. Well, I have a pretty good story. It's a big name that a lot of people will know because that seems to be what Wisconsin is all about as far as true crime stories go. True, true. So today I'll be taking you on a trip to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's the county seat of Milwaukee County, the largest city in Wisconsin, and the fourth largest city in all of the Midwest. I did not know that. Yeah, it's hmm. pretty damn big. Um it's a huge city that's spanning 96.81 square miles and has a population of 594,833 people, but the combined statistical area puts the population at over 2 million. So it's a huge urban area, huh? Yes. <laughs> it's so big that one county can't even hold it. It's located in Milwaukee, Washington, and Waukesha counties. This makes it the 31st largest city in the U.S., it has everything you'd expect to find in a large metropolitan area, including lots of skyscrapers. There's 118 to be exact. And it was even called the coolest city in the Midwest by Vogue magazine. Well, Vogue said it. You know of it's true. Of course. Did I ever tell you that I indirectly worked for Vogue at one point? No. Yeah, I was doing uh, transcription and I was like freelance. But I got a lot of jobs transcribing Vogue articles, like uh, transcribing like interviews that they had with celebrities. Oh. Uh, so if, you know, around 2014, you were reading those celebrity um, interviews, I probably typed that up. <laughs> well, Carrie Bradshaw would be jealous. She exactly. always wanted to work at Vogue. <laughs> so today's subject might be even more well known than the city itself, however. He definitely earns the Joe Metheny Medal of Culinary Excellence, <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> now, Wisconsin has two very high-profile serial killers, Jeffrey Dahmer and Ed Gein. Although I've always been fascinated with Ed Gein, there's one story pertaining to Dahmer that I will discuss that pushed him ahead in the race for who I was going to cover. I know a lot of you out there might know the story of Jeffrey Dahmer, but I'm hoping that I can find some interesting information out there that you may not know. So let's get started. All right, let's dive in. Dahmer was born on May 21st, 1960 in Milwaukee. That makes him a Gemini. I have a lot of close friends that are Geminis, but they always tend to scare me a little anyway. I guess there's a reason. <laughs> He was the first of two boys born to Lionel Herbert Dahmer, a chemistry student at nearby Marquette University at the time, and Joyce Annette Dahmer, teletype machine instructor. So I guess she was just like, Mary, you need to hit that space bar. Jane, I said the margins need to be larger or something like that. I don't know. She pretty much just yelled at people while they were typing is what I'm imagining. Type without looking. Yeah. So there's some dispute as to his childhood. Some people say his parents were very loving toward him, while others state that they were neglectful. Furthermore, it's known that his mother was said to be attention-seeking and argumentative with both her husband as well as the neighbors. Okay. There's far more evidence to the latter, that the latter was true, as his father was rarely home, and in Dahmer's early grade school years, his mother was constantly laid up in bed, suffering from whatever imagined illness that she concocted that week. So she was definitely a hypochondriac. Um, she also suffered from depression and anxiety as well. Makes sense. Those are all sort of bosom buddies. They of... kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. 
Joyce even attempted suicide at one point by overdosing on her anxiety meds. Uh, they were called Equinil or Equinil. They were pretty widely used for a while, but later benzos became the treatment of choice due to the fact that they just worked better and had less side effects. During his early years, Dahmer was said to be your typical energetic, happy child up until he had a double hernia operation at the age of four, and he became more taciturn hmm. after that. He did have a small group of friends growing up, so he wasn't really a loner, but he did have something majorly in common with other burgeoning serial killers, a fascination with dead animals. I feel like that's always the classic one when you hear that. It's always that sinking sense of dread. That Oh, I know. That really is a big thing. I mean, even fake serial killers like Norman Bates mm-hmm. and others, just they always have it. Um, he started small by collecting larger insects in jars, but quickly evolved into taking home roadkill and such. He liked to dismember these animals and keep their parts in jars because he was, quote, curious as to how animals fit together, end quote. And that seems just fine because it's already dead animals. And I definitely have known people who are fascinated by anatomy who do that. That's fine. Actually, um, you remember like career day in school? Yeah. Well, we had this one kid's um, mom come in and she was some sort of like biologist or she did something or maybe she was an anthropologist i'm not sure but she had us dissect owl pellets which is not poop it sounds like poop yeah it's not poop it's um the stuff that the owl cannot digest such as bones and hair so they cough it up into little balls oh kind of like ambergris from whales yes exactly um, the first time I heard the word ambergris, it was uh, the name of a band. <laughs> and I was like, what did they say their name was? Hamburgers? Hamburgers. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but these owl pellets, I was one of the only people to get a full rat skull in mine. What? And it was so cool. And I had to ask her, like, there's still some hair stuck on this after I took, like, all the hair off. How do I get it off? So she, like, explained to me to put it in this solution that I could make. And, you know, it would clean off the, the skull. And I wanted to keep it because it was just so cool that I had this freaking rat skull. See, that's totally normal. So as far as I'm concerned, Jeffrey Dahmer still normal. Well, I did something Ish. a little not normal with it. At one point, I put like a chain through the eye sockets and wore it as a necklace. I mean. But I mean, they did that in the Ginger Snaps movies. So I guess I mean, it's fine. Not, I mean, that's just fashion. Exactly. People wear fur. I was goth. Okay. <laughs> And Sorry to derail you. Yeah, no, we completely got off topic. but <laughs> Or, I mean, still kind of on topic, to be honest. It's possible that his curiosity began when he saw his dad removing animal bones from under the house. He apparently really liked the sound that they made and would dig around the house to find more bones. I also found out he would examine the bodies of living animals to see where their bones were, which is just a little weird. That's that's a next level. So he's just kind of like, let me see your leg. Okay, so the leg bone's connected to the hip bone. Yeah. Yeah. Um imagine what could have happened if he just decided to be like a vet instead, because he had this interest in animals. Mm-hmm. But no, he had to become a freaking cannibal and serial killer. Well, I'm sure there's other things that led him down that path in life. Probably. Um, I'm going to give a trigger warning right now. This next part is very graphic, so you have been warned. In fact, this whole episode is going to be pretty graphic because of who we're dealing with, so you've been warned. 
He once decapitated a dead dog, nailed its body to a tree, and impaled its skull on a stake in the woods next to a cross. Why does it always have to freaking be dogs? It makes me so sad because they're my favorite. I don't know. But that is like really fucked up. Yeah, that would be horrifying to stumble across on a pleasant hike in the woods. You're oh, like, did you, what? Oh my God, yes. Nope. Like, is this some Lord of the Flies shit? What's going on? I'm going to get out of here. So at the age of six, his family moved to Doylestown, Ohio. This is when his brother was born. Jeffrey actually was the one to name his brother. He decided on the name Dead Animal. Just kidding. <laughs> he named him David. And you almost spit out your drink. I know, so as I'm like, I'm making. Oh my god! <laughs> my job is done. I think we can just end the episode right here. Um, and I'm going home. My goal is to always make Nicole spit whatever she's drinking out of her mouth. Um. Okay, so his name was David, not Dead Animal. Okay, thank God. Uh, Lionel also graduated from college in this year and became an analytical chemist. Hmm. Two years later. They moved again to Bath Township, Ohio. Stop stealing our town names, Ohio. Seriously, that's like a thing. Like when you drive through Pennsylvania and you're like passing those signs on the road that tell you like this exit, the town name. When you get into Ohio, like like Eastern Ohio, you start to have this weird deja vu experience. Because it's you, all the same names. Yeah, you're like, we've been driving for hours. How are we passing California again? Oh, my <laughs> God. That is great. Yeah, because we have a Doylestown, we have a bath, we have like all these things, and Ohio has them all too. So, yeah, we can't think of any original names. Nope. And most of our names are named after places in other countries to begin with, so. Or stolen from the local population's word for things. Oh, yes. Anyway, two years after this, during Thanksgiving, Dahmer asked his father what happens to animal bones if they are put in bleach. Lionel, being a chemist now decided to show Dahmer how to bleach bones. Not the best idea in the world, but I'm sure he had no way of knowing his child would turn out to be a psychopath. So he's just like, oh, he's interested in science. I yeah, love science. Exactly. Great. Bond. He shares my yes. interest. Yes, 100%. Yep. We can bond. Uh, when Dahmer got to high school, he didn't really have many friends anymore. Uh, his teachers seemed to like him, though. They said that he was polite and smart, but he only got average grades. Sounds like me. I know, right? <laughs> just apply yourself a little bit more i always love that just apply yourself but mm -hmm. it's boring nah he didn't really talk to many people but he was in the school band and played tennis he was also keen on doing something a little less great with his time he would drink alcohol during school and tell people it was his medicine I don't know <laughs> if they believed him or not but he would tell people that the beer he was drinking was his freaking medicine he did get a reputation for being a class clown, however, which, if his high school was anything like mine, that at least puts you in the periphery of being popular, mm -hmm. being the class clown. So, uh, this reputation was so strong that when someone did something like make weird noises or fake a seizure, like he did, um, those were two of his go-tos, it was known around school as, quote, doing a Dahmer. <laughs> Which I think is hilarious. Doing a Dahmer. I'm sure that has a different meaning today, though. Um, 100% different Example meaning. sentence. The survivors of the 1972 Andes plane crash did a Dahmer. <laughs> These high school years were also when Dahmer first realized that he was gay. 
He even had a relationship with another boy his age, which I'm sure would have been quite the scandal in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Hell, it was still pretty scandalous in the 90s and 2000s. So, well, although he might have been gay, which is normal enough, his predilections tended to delve into something potentially darker. He would fantasize about overpowering and dominating a sexual partner. While that could just have been like a regular Saturday night if someone was into BDSM and everyone was consenting, I'm going to assume that this is a little more than that for him. Also, these fantasies would also connect to his interest in dissection, which is totally not a BDSM thing and, in fact, is a creepy serial killer thing. A hundred percent. There's even this jogger who he would see quite frequently whom he had taken a liking to, and he would fantasize about overpowering him and forcing sex upon him. He even tried to execute this one time when he waited for the man with a baseball bat in the bushes. But luckily for the jogger, he never happened by on that particular day. Wow. How old? Like in high school still? Yep. Oh, that's so very precocious. close freaking call. Yeah. After having marital problems for a while, his parents got divorced in 1977. It's unknown if this had anything to do with the decline of Dahmer's school grades, which began to drop around the same time. His mother had a short affair, and his father found out about it, which I guess was the final straw. Mm. This is actually a common thread among serial killers. A broken home is usually pretty common. But if I'm being completely honest, there's very few people I know, and I think I've said this before, who have parents who are still together. So, from what I read, it seems like right after Dahmer graduated and his parents divorced, was finalized in 1978... They both moved out of the house and left the home to Dahmer. Interesting. So, like, you're an adult now, kiddo. Yeah, Here's so he had just graduated. They got divorced. His mom went to live, I forget where I might have it written down, uh, and his dad was, like, living in a hotel for a while, mm. and he just got the house to himself. Not a good move. I mean, an 18-year-old with a house to himself. Exactly. That's then, just like, bad enough alone. I know. And then it's like, throw in the homicidal tendencies. Exactly. It was also around this time that everyone's favorite cannibal, besides Hannibal Lecter, committed his first murder. So literally three weeks after graduation, this is. Wow. Um, he was living alone at the time and ended up picking up a hitchhiker and invited him over for you know a, few, a drink, like a few beers. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this was actually the plan or just a ruse to get the guy to come to the, the house, but it worked. The hitchhiker was a 19-year-old man named Stephen Mark Hicks. He'd been at a rock concert when Dahmer picked him up and took him back to his place. It seemed like maybe Dahmer didn't plan on murdering him because of the way things unfolded. They actually did drink and listen to music for a few hours, but then the guy wanted to go home, which Dahmer did not want to happen. So Dahmer did the sensible thing and hit him over the head with a 10-pound dumbbell. Oh my god. Then he strangled Hicks to death with the dumbbell by pressing the bar against his throat, hmm. which yeah. is just not the right way to use weights. No, not at all. That's why you always have a spotter. Exactly. Because you seriously can die from yes. like a, a freaking like barbell. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's why I'm afraid to do bench presses with a barbell at my house. I don't have a spotter. I live alone. Um, actually, I live with several very, very large men who will destroy you if you try to break in my house but they're never around when he wants to lift. <laughs> exactly, yes. 
So after this, he stripped the man naked and, as we've discovered, is pretty normal for serial killers at this point, masturbated over the corpse. Here's where he gets into his Norman Bates persona, which is not to be confused with Norman Bates's mother persona. Okay. He takes the body down to his basement, and the next day, he decides to dissect him because it's the Dahmer thing to do. Then he buried the pieces out back, but he wasn't done quite yet. He then dug them up a few weeks later or so, stripped the skin off the bone, dissolved the skin in acid, and then flushed it all down the toilet before taking the now stripped bones and crushing them with Peter Gabriel's favorite tool, a sledgehammer. (laughs) There was a large wooded area behind his house, so he decided to bury the, what I'm assuming is now just bone dust by this point, in the woods. Okay. About six weeks after he had murdered Hicks, his father, who had been living in a hotel up until this point, decides to come home. This must have been an awkward catching up session. So what did you do while I was gone? Oh, you know. I tried to start a garden in the backyard. God, didn't quite work. Yeah, and, you know. just sitting here, killing and chilling. <laughs> so after this, Dahmer enrolled in school at Ohio State University to major in business. If that's what he ended up doing, it was one hell of an odd curriculum and certainly one that I would have enjoyed a lot more than my business classes in college. His courses were anthropology, classical civilizations, and administrative science. Okay. So administrative science makes sense, but anthropology and classical civilizations, which is something that I freaking love, don't seem like they should be in a business class. Well, Maybe get, they're his electives. I don't like know. Like, you got to get your, you know, foundational curriculum out of the way, I imagine. That's true. There are, like, prerequisites for other mm-hmm. stuff, and yeah. So, he only lasted one semester, which is not surprising. He had a major drinking problem by this point and just flunked out. He had, and I didn't even know that this was possible, but he had a 0.45 GPA. Yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. That's like basically like failing all your classes. Yep. Uh, The only reason that his GPA was even that high was because he got a B minus in his riflery class, which I don't, I didn't even know that was a college class. That sounds like a definite elective. Yeah. So basically it's just, you shoot things. And he was only kind of an okay shot because he got a B (laughs) minus. His dad was pretty pissed about this. And I would assume since he had prepaid for another semester um you know already and Dahmer just didn't want to go back after that yeah he ended up urging his son to join the military and Dahmer complied joining the army as a medical specialist I would sure as hell not want him anywhere near me with anything sharp so just let me die if that's the case no if it's (laughs) Dahmer or nothing I choose death He was reportedly an average to above average soldier, according to reports, and was initially trained in Texas before being stationed in Baumholde, uh, West Germany. Because Germany was still split up at that point. Right. Um, He turned out to be quite shit at this too, though. After a while, due to his excessive drinking, and he was honorably discharged in 1981, This is probably only because they didn't know what he was doing to some of his fellow soldiers. Oh. One man said that he drugged and raped him in an armored personnel carrier in 79. 
while another man said that he was repeatedly raped by Dahmer for 17 months. Oh, I never knew about that. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of things that I didn't know before doing this, too, so I'm really glad I did it. He was sent to South Carolina and given a plane ticket to go anywhere he wanted after leaving the Army, but didn't want to go home because of his father, so he went to Miami, Florida instead. When he first got there, he was living in a motel and found a job at a deli. Again, I would not trust him around meat at all either. (laughs) He didn't last very long here and soon returned home after drinking away all his earnings and failing to pay his motel rent. Um, Between going home and losing his motel, Mm -hmm. he was actually camping out on the beach. And um, he actually almost got stabbed the one time because this group of guys thought that he was going to like try and rob them, which I wouldn't put a past and try to do something to them. Mm -hmm. So who knows? So he then went back home to live with his father. He was getting in trouble as soon as he got home, though. His dad and stepmom tried to fill out his day with chores since he still didn't have a job, but he ended up drinking all the time still and was arrested on drunken disorderly charges and given a $60 fine. After this debacle, he sent, he was sent to live with his grandmother in West Allis, Wisconsin. I think I'm pronouncing that right. A-L-L-I-S? I think so. Yeah. Okay. She seemed to be the only family member that he liked enough to listen to, and things worked out with him for a little while at least. He attended church with her, he looked for jobs, and he willingly did chores around the house. The big reason that he was sent there was so maybe he could stop drinking, but of course that part was just too much to ask. It is hard in Wisconsin too. Wisconsin definitely has a very deeply ingrained, like, not, I don't want to say bar culture, but drinking culture. Well, you said they have a lot of breweries and yeah, stuff. Yeah, they have a so. lot of breweries, yeah. It was interesting. Wisconsin's the only place I've ever been where um, you can order a Bloody Mary and you get a beer on the side with it. Holy crap. Like a little pony beer. Well, I mean, around here, a lot of places have policies where you're not allowed to have two drinks at the yeah. same time. So Not Wisconsin. And a lot of times they let me, like, if I have, like, a double Jameson, or not, actually double Tullamore is what I would do back then. But some people would be like, well, it's basically a shot, so I guess you can have a beer with it. That's fine. It's like a chaser. Yeah, it's beer back, thanks. But anyway. Yeah. So he committed another crime while living with his grandmother that I'm not sure if he was caught for, but it's a weird one. He stole a mannequin from a department store, and yes, the mannequin was male. Mm-hmm. He proceeded to use it for sex until his grandmother found it and had him get rid of it. Awkward. So awkward. Yeah. He found work as a phlebotomist, which, again, just stop giving him anything sharp, please. (laughs) This didn't last either, and he was laid off 10 months later. Around the same time, maybe a little before being laid off, he was in trouble with the law again. This time, in August of 1982, he was at Wisconsin State Fair Park and decided his penis was a thing of beauty that had to be shared with the 25 women and children around him that day, and he was arrested for indecent exposure. That's weird. That seems kind of oddly out of character. It is, but it's not. But I guess if he's drinking heavily, it's like. It's not that far off yeah. his wheelhouse, yeah. you know. Again, he walked away with a fine and court fees. Now, to any men listening to this podcast, I know we're all very proud of our penises, but please just keep it in your pants outside of the bathroom and the bedroom unless otherwise given permission. Thank you. (laughs) 
After this, he worked as a mixer for a chocolatier. He was assigned to the overnight shift, which I can attest is not always the greatest shift in the world. He also worked six days a week, so it would seem like he'd be too busy to really get into much trouble at this point, right? Yeah. Wrong. Of course. So, he was reading in the library one day, and a man passed him a note offering to, how should I put this? Give him oral pleasure. For any children listening, that means this nice man wanted to tell him a story. Also, they all lived happily ever after. Time for bed. Okay, now that the kids are asleep, I'll continue. He didn't take him up on this offer, but it did set his brain on the path of sex and dominance once again, so he started going to local gay bars and especially bathhouses. He went to the bathhouses like a lot. Uh, Now, if y'all don't know what a bathhouse is, I only have secondhand knowledge and actually pride myself on the fact that I've never been to one. But here's what I've heard they're like from friends and from watching Queer as Folk. (laughs) Basically, it's a place where you go to have anonymous and usually gay sex. Um, From my understanding of things is you either need like a membership or you pay at the door and you're given a towel and a locker or a room or something and you apparently can only wear that towel like you have to like give up your clothes Mm -hmm. uh clothing is forbidden or something don't get me wrong i like being naked as much as the next person but i prefer to do it in private so basically you get a room or a locker and you can just have sex with whomever is willing this was a big hobby of Dahmer's to relieve some of that sexual frustration I mean, chocolate is an aphrodisiac, according to many people. (laughs) So he would go into the bathhouses and describe the atmosphere of the sweaty men doing God only knows what. Very relaxing for him. He was so zen when he was there. It's like a spa day. Yeah. With penises. With penises and ball sweat. So he would go and have sexual encounters with men but he said later that he didn't see people as people and just tools for sexual pleasure and remember he liked being really dominant so he would get mad when they moved oh so yeah he didn't want them to move during sex which i mean i'm like what's the point (laughs) but you know whatever floats your boat i guess uh he came up with a little solution to this problem that's right it's drugs of course So he would drug these men's drinks and then rape them while they were unconscious. Awesome. So he's already like evolving quite a bit and we Mm -hmm. haven't even gotten to murder except Mm -hmm. the one time. Now he's getting better at drugging and raping men. Exactly. Which becomes his major MO. It got out eventually that he was doing this, however, and he was kicked out of the bathhouse. He then decided to rent a hotel room and lather, rinse, repeat. So just do it all again. He only evolves in his deviant behavior and ideology from here when he hears about the funeral of an 18-year-old boy being held and he decides that it would be a great idea to go and dig up the freshly buried body to take it home with him for, you know, reasons. For mannequin time. Yep, exactly. Much like the jogger story from earlier, though, he goes to dig up this body and realizes that the ground is too hard and he just calls it quits. After this, he was arrested yet again for going to the Kinnick River and masturbating in front of two 12-year-old boys because we've established he's great at making the right choices in life. He loves parks for all the wrong reasons. really does, I know. 
He tried to say that he was just peeing and not masturbating, but everyone who saw knew what he was doing because it honestly doesn't take a freaking genius to know the difference, and his charges were upped from indecent exposure to disorderly conduct, and this time he was given probation for a year and sent to counseling. Mm. Times have changed a bunch since then, and now he would probably have been in jail and also be a registered sex offender for life, but this was 1987, so it really was a different world. Mm. Also in 87, he met a 25-year-old man named Stephen Tuomi in Ontonagon, Michigan. Sure, we'll go with that. Yeah, okay. And no, I cannot say that five times fast, nor am I even sure I'm pronouncing it right. Stephen would be Dahmer's next victim. Anyway, he met him at a bar and brought him back to a hotel room in Milwaukee. The hotel was called the Ambassador Hotel. We don't know how he was murdered exactly because Dahmer claims that he has no memory of what happened that night, but they think he may have tried to pull his heart from his chest. What? Yes. Basically, the plan was to get him back to the hotel, drug his drinks, and rape him like he's been doing all this time. Instead, he said that he woke up the next morning and Stephen Tuomi's body was lying on the ground. Uh, not lying on the ground. It was lying under him. Sorry. Blood was coming out of his mouth and his chest was caved in and bruised. Also, Dahmer's fist and forearm were bruised and sore, so I'm assuming he killed him with his bare hands. Oh, my God. Here's where things get a bit crazy, as if it wasn't crazy enough already. He stuffed his body into a suitcase, which he then took back to his grandmother's house, where he was still living. A week later, he dismembered the body again, so I guess that was one big suitcase if he shoved all of him into the suitcase. A week later, though? A week later. Ugh. He put the skin into garbage bags and wrapped the bones in sheets before using a sledgehammer on the bones again. And then he threw everything out with the trash, not even bothering to bury this victim. Wow. The process reportedly took two hours for him to complete. We're also about to get into Joe Metheny territory, so you might want to skip ahead for this part if you're squeamish. And it's not even the Joe Metheny territory that Jeffrey Dahmer is well known for. He saved the head and boiled it in bleach and something called Soylex. He would take this skull and then he'd have sex with it. Oh my. Because remember, Metheny also did that. also a skull fucker, yeah. Yep. He kept the head for two weeks before it started to break down and pulverized it before throwing it again into the trash. There were a few more victims that we don't know the names of during this period in time. Uh, He would yet again abduct them from local gay hangouts, take them back to grandma's, then drug rape and strangle them to death. That was like his big thing. Two months after killing Stephen, he raped and murdered a 14-year-old Native American prostitute in pretty much the same fashion. He invited him over and he said he'd pay the boy $50 for nude photos. Hmm. Then he raped and murdered him, again, keeping the skull for use as a sex toy. Awesome. After this, in March of 1988... He lured 22-year-old Richard Guerrero to his grandmother's house under the guise of paying him for sex. He murdered him in the same fashion and yet again kept a skull for (laughs) uh, later use. Um, The only thing that was different about this one was after he killed Guerrero, he sodomized the mouth of the corpse as well. 
I'm honestly wondering who was handling the trash pickup in the area at this time because each and every time he's putting human remains in the trash and no one is noticing anything strange. Also, where's his grandmother in all of this? I mean, she's probably an old lady. Yeah, but still. And it could be, I mean, I don't know much about the town that they were in, but it could, if it's a more rural place, that could be par for the course. Like if you have people who hunt a lot and it's like. That's true. They could have stuff, but I don't know. Do you really get rid of, I guess you do, but I don't know. Yeah. If you dress a deer yourself, you're going to like throw that stuff out that you don't use with the skin and stuff unless you get tan, but. Okay. Yeah. I do not hunt. So I don't know. I always feel like everybody I know who hunts or has like a relative who hunts, they always have like way too much meat afterwards. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, oh. oh. That's how I end up getting venison yeah. is when that happens. Yeah. Anyway, the following month, he almost claimed another victim when he lured someone else back to the house, drugged the man's coffee, and then his grandma came home saying, Is that you, Jeff? When she heard a noise. I guess that ruined the moment for him because although he did drug his coffee, he just waited for this guy to pass out and then took him to the hospital. Huh. Yeah. Well, I mentioned a few paragraphs ago about where was his grandmother for all this and how did she not know something? Well, in September, he got fed up or she got fed up with Dahmer and, uh, you know, just always bringing these strange men home at late hours and she didn't like whatever he was doing that made the basement and the garage smell so foul. So she kicked him out. Oh my goodness, Grandma. Yeah, he ended up finding an apartment after this on North 25th Street. Very, The very next day after he moved in, however, he was arrested for molesting a 13-year-old boy whom he'd propositioned for nude pictures in his apartment. <sighs> he was found guilty of second-degree sexual assault and for this as well as corruption of a minor... Mm-hmm. Uh, his sentence was suspended, however, until May of 1989. He ended up moving back into his grandmother's house around Easter and, of course, took another victim. This one's name was Anthony Sears. He was 24 years old and an aspiring model. Uh, they struck up a conversation at a local gay bar, and since Dahmer's going to do what Dahmer's going to do, he brought him back to Grandma's where they had sex before he drugged and strangled him. He used the bathtub this time for his dismemberment and actually saved his head and penis. This is the first time he was doing that, which is a big thing that he would do. Uh, He kept them in a jar filled with acetone in his locker at work. Oh, my God. That would be an interesting conversation starter, I assume. Yeah. Got some pickled sausage in in your uh, locker there, Jeff? Like, no, no. (laughs) That was perfect with the accent, too. I guess laws were changed in 1989 because at least this time when sentencing finally happened on the sexual assault charge, Dahmer was sentenced to a year in prison with work release uh, and five years probation and had finally had to register as a sex offender, which should have been done ages ago, honestly. Mm -hmm. In 1990, once out of prison, he got an apartment again on North 25th Street in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, the apartment number was 213. Not really important, but if it comes up in a trivia night, guess what? We did that for you. <laughs> uh, so he had only been there a week when he was back up to his old tricks and murdered a male prostitute named Raymond Smith. Again, it was the standard $50 bribe, drug him, and strangle him. 
The evolution here from other crimes is that he posed Raymond's body in different sexual positions before disposing of the body in pretty much the same fashion and keeping the skull and spray painting it this time. Because I guess he wanted something fancy. Mm-hmm. Color-coded. Yeah. And when I say words like evolution and evolving, uh, what that means is, uh, in context relating to serial killers, is that when a serial killer takes a new victim and does something a little different, maybe ups the ante a little, so to speak, that's called evolving. It's usually a new ritual that they perform each time. Gotcha. Soon after, he found another would-be victim, uh, took him back to his place, but in a karmic and comedic moment, Dahmer accidentally drank the drug drink himself instead of giving it to his intended target and ended up passing out. (laughs) When he woke up, he'd been robbed of $300, his watch, and some clothing. (laughs) I mean... Can't say, uh, you know, I'm upset about that at all. Yeah, no, no. He didn't let this deter him, unfortunately, and by June, he was back at it. He took Edward Smith, a man that he already knew at least briefly back to his place and did away with him in the usual fashion. But this time he realized that he was sick and tired of all these skull sex toys he had made always breaking on him after a while and decided to freeze Smith's skeleton for a while, hoping that it would make it less brittle. Then he tried to put his skull in the oven and it exploded. I was going to say, I'm like, you want something to be less brittle. So you're going to freeze it. Yeah. Isn't that the opposite of what you'd want to do? Yeah, but it just freaking exploded everywhere. So do not put a skull in an oven, people. With his next victim, Ernest Miller, things got a little out of hand as well. He went to give him head at one point, and Miller told him it would cost extra. So Dahmer decided he'd break out the old sleeping pills, but he only had two left. So instead he took out the knife that he usually kept for dismemberment and just slashed Miller's carotid artery. Oh my. Uh, He then got really gross and made out with the head and talked to it while he dismembered the body. That is super gross. Yeah. seems like he just keeps getting sicker and sicker. And also I have absolutely no idea how he hasn't been caught at this point. Because think about it, like, how many victims have we had? Like, close to 10 probably by now? Yeah, on the same apartment. Yeah. Like. Well, I mean, in the same apartment, there's been less than 10, but, you know. Fair. Um, Miller's death marks the time, as long as my source is correct, that he began what he's best known for, eating his victims. He saved Miller's heart, leg, and a few other choice morsels so he'd have a few meals. At least his grandmother should be happy that he's eating, I guess. <laughs> Um, he also wanted to save the skeleton again, so he froze it and coated it in enamel this time, which I think did the trick. Mm. Since the story would be way too long if I continue to name each and every victim, I'm going to streamline things a bit from here on out because he killed 17 people that we know about. That we know about, That we know, yeah. There's always a chance that there's going to be more or less than the Mm -hmm. actual number the killer tells you. Another victim, David Thomas, was also not, um... Almost not a victim. As after Dahmer drugged him, he realized that he wasn't really all that into him and didn't want him to get angry about being drugged, so he just killed him anyway but didn't save any parts. Uh, He did take pictures of the dismemberment process, though, and save them because that was a big thing that he did. Oh, That's one of the reasons that we know a lot of his victims as well. Hmm. He went dry after this for five months and didn't kill anyone. 
which is pretty normal for serial killers. There's cool always down. a cool down period. Yeah. The next victim that aided in his evolution as a serial killer was Errol Lindsay. This was when he started drilling holes into victims' heads and pouring hydrochloric acid into the hole, like he injected it into the hole, mm. which is another big trademark of his. His goal with this was to create a permanent state of docility. He did this after drugging him, and Lindsay later woke up and complained of a headache and asked, you know, like, what, what, what's going on? What time is it? Mm-hmm. I don't even know how that's possible with a hole in acid in your skull, but he did. So Dahmer drugged him once more before killing him. Well, I mean, you can survive having a hole in your head, right? I guess so, yeah. Like, trepanning is a, is a thing that's that people true. do. But the acid is like... The acid's what scares me the yeah. most. Yeah. And it would have killed him probably eventually. Oh, yeah. He also tried to save Lindsay's skin by soaking it in cold salt water, but it didn't work, so he had to just get rid of it. You might be saying... How is he doing all of this in an apartment building and no one's saying anything? I am curious about that. Well, it turns out that there have been several complaints to the building manager about strange sounds and smells, as well as the sound of a chainsaw. That's right, guys. He's not very subtle. What? Yeah. Like, I feel like neighbors complain when you make a curry sometimes. Like, I can't imagine. Neighbors complain if you still have your shoes on when you go in your house. Like... (laughs) It's... Never mind that stench and the chainsaw noises, everybody. <laughs> exactly. Everything's fine and under control. Either he's using a very powerful vibrator, or I think it's a chainsaw. I'm really into turkeys, and I have an electric carver, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I just, I need it. I forgot about the electric knife. <laughs> My grandmother had one and used it a lot. He made some excuses when asked about the smell, saying either that his freezer broke and some food got spoiled, or that his uh, exotic fish that he had died. Okay, then. Possibly the craziest story yet of any Dahmer's victims is a story of, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, it's um, it's Laotian, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but Conorak Synthesymphone. Okay. First off, he turned out to be the younger brother of the boy Dahmer had molested, like one of the 12-year-olds. Oh. But something else quite crazy happened with this one. According to Wikipedia, Conorak was only 14 at this time, but new evidence, according to another source, suggests that he may have been as old as 17. Okay. Anyway, on to the weird. It started off pretty normal for Dahmer. He invited him to his apartment to pose for some pictures in exchange for money, which Conorak wasn't too keen on to begin with, but I guess he decided he wanted the money in the end, so he went with him. So he went back to the apartment, and he posed in his underwear for a few pictures before Dahmer drugged him. He drilled his hole and injected the acid into the frontal lobe yet again and then raped him. He brought him into his bedroom where he already had like a dead body lying on the bed from a man that he killed three days prior. Oh my God. Just decomposing right on the bed. And this apartment must have freaking stank to high heavens. Mm-hmm. Dahmer has a few drinks while Conorak lies there unconscious but still very much alive before deciding... He'd rather be at a bar and leaves his victim in his bed drugged. Oh, my God. Probably still next to the corpse. He comes back to find Conorak outside in his underwear, surrounded by three women. Dahmer tried to tell them that he's his friend and he needs to get him inside, but they said they already called the police. So, mind you, Conorak doesn't speak much, if any, English and is speaking loud this whole time. Mm -hmm. The cops 
show up and Dahmer tells this story to the police that Conorak is actually his boyfriend and they had a fight and Conorak is just drunk uh, and everything's okay. Mm-hmm. The women try telling the police, look, this kid is bleeding from his backside. He has a freaking hole in his head and doesn't seem to want to go with this man. You need to do something. The police are having none of it and actually tell the woman to, quote, shut the hell up, end quote. And that just seems like it's a domestic dispute. And they let Dahmer take him back into the apartment. That's not their job, domestic disputes. Exactly, yeah. Mm. So they let him take him back to the apartment. The apartment when they led him back there uh they did smell something funny because there's literally a fucking decomposing body inside mm-hmm. uh but they didn't really seem to check it out or care and just told Dahmer to take care of his lover and they left yeah they're like whatever we don't yeah. care he's a brown man exactly so since Conrack was obviously not as out of it as Dahmer had wanted, he decided to inject more acid into his frontal lobe, which ended up killing him instead. Mm. Had the police actually been doing their jobs, they could have saved his life, but they didn't investigate where you know they really should have. They didn't even run a background check, which we know for a fact, seeing as if they had, they would have not only seen that he was on probation... Uh, but what he was on probation for. Yeah, and that wasn't he a registered sex, def- sex yep. offender at that point? Exactly. And it's like, even though you said that he that Conrad could have been 14 or 17, either way, it was probably Still a clear minor. he's a teenager. Yes. Yeah. These cops should have realized what a dead freaking body smells like and looked around the apartment. All they did was ask for proof that he was his boyfriend and Dahmer showed them the underwear shots that he had just taken. They're like, good enough, let's get going. Oh my God. Um, after this, he started traveling to Chicago where he killed two more victims, injecting boiling water into the second one's brain, causing him to go into a coma and he died two days later. Hmm. He killed two more people after this that we know of and still wasn't caught. It was on July 22nd, 1991 that signaled the beginning of the end for Dahmer. He approached three men with his usual nude photo scam. Only one of the three men, Tracy Edwards said, okay, sure. And went back to the apartment with him. Now, I don't even care how much he may have cleaned this place. I'm sure the whole floor he lived on just stank at this point. Mm -hmm. One of those other victims who I didn't cover, their head was left wrapped in bed sheets for two days or so and had maggots all over it by the time Dahmer got to it. And he saved it anyway. Gross. So smell, smell, smell. Beyond gross. Yes. Um, Dahmer seemed to be getting a bit sloppy by this point, I'd say. And as soon as Edwards walked into the apartment, he could smell something awful and noticed a shit ton of boxes of hydrochloric acid just lying around out in plain sight. Uh, yeah. It sounds like he's like fully spiraling out of control. And like, this is his urge to kill is more prevalent than anything else. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like a blaze of glory. Oh Yeah. Because, I mean, he's pretty much night after night after night mm-hmm. just kidding, killing more people. Um, so he thought it was a little fishy when he saw these boxes and asked about them. And Dama replied with, oh, I use those to clean bricks. You can't even clean your apartment, Jeffrey. What are we supposed to believe that now? Like, no. They talked for a bit before Dahmer tried to pull a fast one, telling Edwards, hey, look at my tropical fish. 
before handcuffing him or attempting to do so. It was unclear which one from my research. Um, to which Edwards apparently just replied, what's that? So I don't know. He might have been drugged prior mm-hmm. to this. I'm not sure. He then was like, oh, that weird sound you heard totally wasn't handcuffs, nor is that sensation on your wrists. It's time for some nude pictures. If you'd please follow me in my gracious bedroom. <laughs> so Dahmer had set the mood with everything for a romantic and sexy evening pictures of naked men adorn the wall the exorcist three was playing on the television and the sweet scent of putrefying bodies hung in the air wow well there was also a 57 gallon drum uh in the corner of the room that smelled of eau de corpse but i guess edwards either didn't notice yet or didn't think anything about it Mm -hmm. um Dahmer pulled out a knife and again was like, naked picture time. Edwards tries to bargain with him saying that, you know, he would do whatever he wanted if he just, you know, uncops him and puts down the knife. Mm-hmm. Dahmer just sort of watched TV for a bit because he loved The Exorcist 3. It was one of his favorite movies. Um, and then chanted weirdly before putting his head on Edwards' chest and telling him in a soft voice, I'm going to eat your heart. Yeah. I'm not making that part up at all. After this, Edwards tried to formulate an escape plan. He kept uh, assuring Dahmer that he was you know, not going to run away and he'll do whatever he said. He then asked Dahmer, hey, it's kind of hot in here. Can I at least, you know, have a beer and we can sit in the living room where there's air conditioning? So Dahmer says, yeah, and they go into the living room and I guess Dahmer either hadn't cuffed him like i previously had mentioned that was possible he wasn't cuffed Mm -hmm. or that Dahmer was just like holding the other cuff or something it sounded like um and edwards realized this after sitting for a minute that Dahmer had just kind of drifted off a bit so he asked to go to the bathroom and upon getting up he quickly punches Dahmer in the face and just runs out the door which wasn't locked so he's really getting sloppy wow Obviously, Edwards goes to the police and the three officers, and better ones than before, I assume, uh, show up at the apartment to ask about the incident. He says, yeah, I handcuffed him. Um, I, I wonder why I did that or something to that effect. Wow. Yeah. Like He's not even like, I don't, I don't like, know I don't why. Um, my source uh, for this part was a little unclear about a few things here, and Edwards may have still been with the police at this point, or he may have just had time to tell them about the knife that he brand that Dahmer had brandished. Mm-hmm. They end up finding the knife in the bedroom, just like Edwards had said. They went through his drawers at this point and found a slew of photographs that Dahmer had taken of all the skeletons and bodies decomposing and asked if they were real. Dahmer knew the jig was up at this point and he tried to make a break for it, but the three officers were able to restrain him and cuff him before looking around some more. They went in the fridge and found a severed head of a black man on the bottom shelf. Uh, At this point, when the officers saw this, Dahmer's only reply was, for what I did, I should be dead. Oh, my. Um, When they did a full sweep, they discovered various organs and body parts, lots of blood and other drippings at the bottom of the couch, seven painted skulls, four severed heads, Two human hearts and a torso in the freezer. Wow. Yep. 
there was also a bag of organs stuck against the ice in the back. I... Yeah, the medical examiner was even shocked about everything that they had found, saying it was more like dismantling someone's museum than an actual crime scene. They interviewed Dahmer for 60 hours over a long period of time, and he was more than willing to confess to his crime, saying, I created this horror, and it only makes sense that I do everything to put an end to it. Interesting. Uh, He later said that before his arrest, he was working on creating an altar with skulls of his victims and the full skeletons that he, you know, still had. They would be on either side of the altar. Mm -hmm. They asked him, you know, who's this altar dedicated to, to which he replied, myself. It was a place that where I could just feel at home. Wow. Creepy. Wow. He also said that if they arrested him six months later, the altar would have been finished. As for motive, he said he just felt the strong compulsion to kill these men. He wanted to be surrounded by attractive men and didn't want to be alone. But he also felt the need to dominate, and the only way he could do that is if they were dead, I guess. He was charged with 14 out of the 17 murders and received life in prison. In prison, Dahmer actually became a born-again Christian and was baptized, but I don't know how seriously he took it. Because mm-hmm. sometimes I feel like people are just like, well, I guess I should save my soul now. Yeah. Guess what? Not going to work. Um, anyway, he seems to have like resigned himself to his fate and even once said to his mother when they were on the phone, I don't care if something happens to me. In July of 1994, an attempt was made in his life by a fellow inmate who tried to slash his throat with a razored toothbrush. Uh, but this attempt failed and he only had superficial injuries. It wasn't until later that he was not quite as lucky. And a few months after that, in November, when he went to the prison's gym showers with two other inmates, Jesse Anderson and Christopher Scarver, they were left unattended and around 8 10 a.m. He was found on the floor after being bludgeoned with a large metal bar. He was still alive but did not survive his injuries, dying an hour later. Jesse Anderson was also killed by Christopher Scarver at this time, and when asked, Christopher, who was a schizophrenic, just said that God told him to do it. Interesting. There's been several movies, TV shows, books, and even two plays made about Jeffrey Dahmer over the years following his arrest. He's also been the inspiration for quite a few fictional adaptations and a whole bunch of memes. As you know, the I was eating five guys before it was a place. You're like, yeah. It doesn't taste like there's five guys in this. Yep. Some movies include The Secret Life, Jeffrey Dahmer in 1993, Dahmer in 2002, Raising Jeffrey Dahmer in 2006, and the most recent one being My Friend Dahmer in 2017, starring Ross Lynch from the Netflix Sabrina reboot which is perfect because I see the shirt you're wearing, Nicole. I see it. (laughs) Spellman Mortuary. Um, So that's right, guys. Harvey freaking Kinkle plays Jeffrey Dahmer. His own father even wrote a book about him called A Father's Story, which is supposed to be his father, Lionel, attempting to figure out where he went wrong as a parent. Although we all at least know of Jeffrey Dahmer, we normally think that cannibal guy with the glasses. Yeah. I don't think people realize how truly, truly horrible it was. Oh, yeah. I mean, we probably don't, a lot of us probably don't know the full story until today. Like, uh, and I mean, we still don't know the full story because I cut out a lot of things from the story. Mm -hmm. Just 
to save some time. Uh, anyway, I hope it wasn't just a retread of information everyone already knew and maybe added something to your Dahmer encyclopedia entry. So interestingly enough, when I was looking for my own true crime yeah. slash paranormal story for Wisconsin, I watched an episode of Netflix's uh, Dark Tourist. Okay, yeah. And there's one, the America one, they actually go to Milwaukee is one of the stops and they go on a Jeffrey Dahmer tour. Oh, wow. And it was interesting because the people who were on the tour primarily, like the hosts of the tour were like, oh, yeah, we get a lot of bachelorette parties. And I would say it, the the tour group was like probably like 95% women. Wow. And so the documentarian was sort of like, why do you think women are drawn to Jeffrey Dahmer? And like all of them have like these things to say about Dahmer that just seems so disconnected from the actual person. They're like, oh, you know, women like the dangerous type of dude. Uh, first of all, he's not going to be interested in you. He was gay. Uh. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of the take that that uh, the, the host had. He's like, okay, I don't know why all these women are obsessed with this gay serial killer. Right. But it seems very uncomfortable. And I'm like, yes, yes, Ooh, it does. I mean, just the idea. I mean, I know there are people out there that are like, all about like I want to date a serial killer. I yeah. want to, you know, ugh, no, like no, get some help, please, please get help. But yeah, if you have like fifteen minutes, I definitely recommend checking out that episode of of Dark Tours. I will. They it was talk to his one, one of the lawyer. things that came up when yeah. I was looking for things that have been done on Dahmer. It's interesting. They talk very much about you see the sketch he had for the altar. Oh really? And you so you knew about the altar yeah. already? Damn it. Um, but it's interesting because his lawyer, I think it was his lawyer. Um, somebody who helped with his legal defense, she has tapes of herself interviewing oh, yeah. him. And like hearing his voice on tape is so interesting. So you're like, that is not the voice I would expect. He, no. As I was doing just like, like this notes, like I could hear his voice in my head because I know yeah. very well what it sounds like. I'm like, oh, that's, yeah. Hmm. It's kind of a little monotone kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, that's it. That's my yeah. story. Well, I, I definitely learned a lot more than I needed to know about Jeffrey Dahmer. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, my sources for this week uh, were Wikipedia, thelineup.com, chicago.suntimes.com, history.com, biography.com, and apnews.com. Each source this week had a ton of information, so I really didn't need to go all that far. I just mainly used stuff to fact check. Cool. Well, thanks for that story, Eden. Uh, Absolutely. I'm taking on one of the big hitters of Wisconsin true crime. Yeah. Um, Took me way too long to do those notes. I never want to have to spend that much time working on this again. Oh, man. I, I'm still like, wow, Dahmer is, wow. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot to it. Like, I know Egin is like the other one from Wisconsin, but. Oh, yeah. I feel like his crimes are a little bit, that we know about, are, are nothing compared to yeah. Dahmer. I mean, he's just interesting because he made creepy stuff out of yeah. people's yeah. parts. Anyway, we all probably need a break. Yeah, let's take a little break, and then we'll come back, and I believe Eden has some delightful little tidbits to share with us before I dive into my paranormal story. I do. All right, talk to you soon, gang. And we're back. Hi, everybody. Um, I have something new that I'm going to roll out that we're going to try for a little while, but um, also I have a Florida man request. So, Johnny, since I know you listen every week, this is for you. And it's definitely something that you might do when you're drunk. <laughs> Florida man accused of pouring beer into Gator's mouth after inciting reptile to bite his arm. <laughs> 
a South Florida man is accused of pouring beer into an alligator's mouth after inciting the reptile to bite his arm, and his friends caught it, authorities said. <laughs> Timothy Jean Kepke, 27, of uh, Hobes Sound, I don't know where that is, uh, was charged with unlawfully taking an alligator, according to the Martin County Sheriff's Office. Taking? So did he, like, steal this alligator? He stole that gator. Okay. I mean, there's enough to go around in Florida. I mean, you don't really <laughs> need to steal them. Um, another man, Noah Osborne, 22, of Stewart, was charged with the same crime. <laughs> My God. Okay. Yeah, that's freaking bizarre. But the new thing that I'm rolling out, see if everyone likes it, please give us your feedback, is weird news from around the country. And to keep with the theme, we're going to keep this one in Florida. So you may have heard about this. You may have not. But currently, Florida plans to unleash 750 million genetically modified mosquitoes into the area. Interesting. Their goal is to, like, I guess, get rid of, like, the real mosquito population because those ones, like, the, the females are the only ones that bite. Yeah. I've also heard about this happening in like places in South America where they suffer from West Nile and, all and that. malaria all year yeah. round. And you so, release them and it like infiltrates the population and cuts it like dramatically, right? That's what they're trying to do. It just seems kind of weird though, because you're still putting fucking mosquitoes out there. And nature finds a fucking way. Life finds a way. Thank you very <laughs> much, Jeff Goldblum. Well, it makes me curious about the, the greater ramifications, right? So like in places where they do this, it's like a jungle. And when they release these modified mosquitoes, they breed with the local population. Yeah. And then when the females go to lay eggs, the legs aren't eggs aren't viable. And it can drop Correct. the population by like 80%, which makes sense. But in a place like Florida, it makes you wonder too, like, how is that going to impact the other creatures in the ecosystem exactly. that rely on that food source? And that's exactly what you need to think about. It, there's an entire ecosystem. You mess up one thing, catastrophic things can happen. Other species start dying off and then that cuts off the food chain to other species. Mm -hmm. It's not good. I always think about uh, places like uh, Pacific islands, like Hawaii mm -hmm. or and particularly Australia, where there's been like the best intentions of people in Australia be like, yeah. oh, rabbits will, be, will probably do really well here. We can raise rabbits here. And then they take over. Yes. Then it's like, oh, we have some kind of like uh, annoying wasp pest. Let's import these frogs that will eat them. And then yeah. they run and out of they control. they just go all over the place. Like in Australia, if you have a cat um, and you let it in outside, there are certain areas of Australia where if the cat is outside after a certain curfew, it's completely legal for people to kill the cat. So they'll hunt down like stray cats because they devastate the environment because cats, as we all know, are nature's little serial killers. Oh, yeah. Same Just thing like in like mosquitoes Hawaii. mosquitoes are nature's dirty needles. Yeah. <laughs> they are nature's dirty needles. It's so true. Uh, Florida. Yeah. And I mean, like, it's the same thing with, I don't even know why we released them, but the Africanized bees that took over like the Western part of the country. I feel like that might've been an accident. I think it was an accident, but I'm not sure. But who the hell decided let's crossbreed a fucking British honeybee with some crazy African bees that kill people. I think it was about the hardiness in certain areas and it just kind of got out of control. Oh, okay. The African killer bees <laughs> are, first of all, they have killer in the name. Second of all, they're assholes and they will chase you for like, I think 50 miles, something crazy. Like they'll chase you forever. And they might not be able to swim, 
but you can't hold your breath very long. So even if you jump in water, they'll be hovering right above you in the water, ready to sting and bite and attack. That's intense. Yeah. Have you ever had a uh, killer bee honey? No. Oh, they sell it. Yeah. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. Um, so Africanized honeybees, you can keep them um, and they will give honey and it's slightly different than like that. It tastes slightly different than the honey I've had huh. from other honeybees. But I remember I had it. It was very um, delicious. Honestly, it was like very caramelly. I've had Manuka honey recently mm. and that's pretty good. I also use it in a face mask because it's supposed to be good for your skin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No honey. Yeah. I always get sad when I read about colony collapse because I'm like, honey is like one of the most amazing oh, yeah. things we have in the world. I love like honey it on and my bananas. Chicken nuggets. <laughs> I'm like bananas too. <laughs> I always worry about bananas. These are the things that keep me up late at night. Where I'm like, what bananas. if the banana crop dies? Like the like the gross Michelle's again. Okay, you know what it pretty much already did because those are just cloned bananas that we're eating anyway. I know so. the Cavendish, like the bananas that our grandparents grew up with, are not the same. Yep, it makes me very upset about things so none of us know what a real banana freaking tastes like nope nope anyway that went off way off topic but that did but nicole <laughs> you're here to bring us back with a story i am i am um this one was surprising as i dug deeper into the story um and it, it kind of has like a little bit of like a not quite as extreme as Amityville, but it kind of has a little bit of that vibe. Okay. And the name of the town, when you mentioned it to me, sounded familiar. So I think I at least glanced at this one. Okay. Or it could be because it sounds like the butter brand. It does sound like butter, but it's not butter. Well, without further ado, uh, our stop today is in Lando Lakes, Wisconsin. Uh, Lando Lakes, Wisconsin, a town of about 861 residents is in central northern Wisconsin. It's located in Villas County along the border with Michigan's Upper Peninsula. While the population of the town is quite small, Lando Lakes is actually a very long and narrow town that covers a pretty large geographical area. It totals about 95 square miles. Okay. And that total area includes about 12 miles of water as well seems to be a fairly common thing in wisconsin yes for sure uh, all the water that in- is included in the town is partially because the town rests near the headwaters of the ontonagon river at the cisco oh, you have that in your yes, notes too yes, okay good river. now we can both pronounce it probably wrong <laughs> Um, there's also the Cisco chain of lakes and part of the Wisconsin River that flows through the town. So despite its large size, most of the services and businesses in the community are located in the far eastern end of the town. So it's kind of this huge town geographically with everything sort of on the, the eastern side of it. Mm-hmm. Now, not far from the eastern edge of town are the shores of West Bay Lake. Uh, West Bay Lake is a lovely area that's been a recreational location for a number of years. And on these grassy shores, in a clearing surrounded by trees, is the burnout remnant of a once great house. Okay. If you go there today, the house is now on private property. But if you were to go there, you would find a large stone foundation and basement that's still visible through the overgrowth and two large stone chimneys that rise above the trees. That's all that's left for our stop today, which is called the Lamont Mansion, also known as Summer Wind. Okay. Yeah, I have. I haven't heard of it, but I, it was one of the ones that came up in my research. Okay, cool. 
Summer Wind, the name itself reminds me of some kind of epic fantasy it does. novel. And I'm like, Summer Wind, the whole time I was typing it, I kept thinking of like Game of Thrones. I could totally see that. <laughs> so we'll get the events that eventually led to the destruction of the mansion a little bit later. I also think of that Summer Breeze song. That Summer Breeze song? Summer Breeze makes me feel <laughs> Fair enough. Summer Wind. Uh, so I'll, I'll touch on the events that led to the destruction of the mansion a little bit later, but let's start at the beginning of Summer Wind. All right. In the early 20th century, the land was home to John H. Frank, who was a former blacksmith who had a homestead there. Eventually, he decided that blacksmithing just wasn't worth the trouble and that he would turn his homestead into a summer resort with a bed and breakfast. Blacksmithing's for suckers. For suckers. I'm going to make eggs for people and give them <laughs> cabins to hang out in. Exactly. That's probably what I'd say, too. It seems like a lot less work. <laughs> uh, so Frank called this spot after he built out some additional cabins, the West Bay Lake Resort. And it turns out this is a pretty savvy move on Frank's part. At the time, the beautiful lakes and rivers that gave the town Lando Lakes its name had started to attract a bunch of wealthy visitors from Chicago who were looking for an escape from the crowded and hot city during the summer months. Okay. Also, you had your uh, your name for your first fantasy novel blacksmith of summer wind <laughs> i would read that <laughs> now one such visitor to west bay lake was robert patterson lamont who was a vice president at the american steel foundry company our pats our pats yes our pat lamont uh he would go actually go on to serve as a secretary of commerce under president herbert hoover so that's a little bit of an interesting tidbit hmm Now, Lamont fell in love with the peace and quiet of West Bay Lake, and he ended up purchasing the resort property from Frank, and that included 80 acres that surrounded the property in 1916. Lamont hired an architecture firm in Chicago who drew up the designs to replace the current resort lodge on the property with this grand retreat for the Lamont family. Okay. Construction took over two years, and when the mansion was finished, it featured 20 rooms as well as several outbuildings. Lamont paid about $125,000 by the time the mansion's construction was completed in 1918. Okay. In today's dollars, that would be about $2.3 million. Which is damn good chunk of change. Mm, damn good chunk of change for your summer retreat on the lake. I mean, pennies in the bucket for us, of course, Nicole. But <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's like my allowance. <laughs> That's my daily spending. (laughs) I'll have to stop drinking Starbucks for two weeks to be able to afford it. (laughs) Anyway, the Lamont family, which included Robert, of course, his wife Gertrude and their three children, began to summering at the mansion, which the family named Lilac Hills. Very beautiful. Now, that's when they also brought in staff from Chicago and basically set them up to take care of the house for them while, while they were there so they could just enjoy it as a summer retreat. Okay. And it's also that staff who were the first people to report paranormal behavior at the house. Uh, now, the staff who were supporting this massive estate would report things like unexplained noises and odd, uncomfortable, disgusting smells around the mansion. What the hell do these people build over? I, that's the thing. Nobody really knows. Portal to hell. Portal to hell. Uh, maids even began to quietly speculate that the house was straight up haunted. And eventually they got so uncomfortable with their daily duties that they went to Mrs. Lamont about it. Uh, it seemed like both of the Lamonts were kind of like, whatever, these freaking rubes that we hired. 
this is a brand new top of the line fancy summer home how could it possibly be haunted yeah no one's died there no one's even lived there before well they kind of were like meh whatever guys you're crazy but we're paying you pennies on the dollar go clean the fireplaces meanwhile the staff continue to work there feeling uneasy and then they started hearing more than just weird noises and smelling funky things around the mansion they started to hear unexplained voices oh great Mm -hmm. but the lamonts for the most part never really heard it themselves so i don't hear anything you're just crazy exactly (laughs) go about your work now exactly then after a few years the lamonts had their own very disturbing encounter good Exactly. Like, <laughs> this is this is how they get you. I don't know why, but I don't like them. <laughs> One evening after a late dinner, uh, both Robert and his wife Gertrude were having a casual dessert in the kitchen. I kind of picture them like just like snacking on a bowl of ice cream or something. I don't know. Casual dessert for them is probably like the ice cream that has like a gold like leaf on top of it. Yeah. Like I said, a casual of course. dessert in their kitchen. <laughs> when suddenly they're basement door which also was the pantry started to shake violently it was as, it was as if someone was trying to force their way through the door and like bust it down great so gertrude hides behind the kitchen counter and robert lamont grabs his pistol and approaches the door before he can open it the door swings open and both lamonts saw what they later described as a quote ghoul it was a overly tall figure of a man dressed all in black and it kind of swayed from side to side that's just how goth stance. <laughs> it's accurate. So the tall goth in the basement <laughs> wanted to come up because he wanted to go from goth to boss. Um, anyway, so Lamont like freaks out. He sees this like dark figure in the basement doorway and he fires his pistol at it twice. Both the bullets pass through the figure and they lodge in the wall behind it. All righty. Then the figure does what mysterious figures do and vanishes. Of course. Uh, it's just kind of like, just kidding. And I'll go come away. back later. Make sure to set food out for me. Ice cream if possible. Um, <laughs> and caviar. Caviar. Uh, it's said that these bullet holes left by Lamont's missed shots uh, were in the walls of the mansion for the next 40 years. Wow. No one ever bothered to take them out or plaster over them. You can't be bothered to do a stupid task like that. Mm-hmm. Come on. I have It adds character to the home. Exactly. So after that encounter, which was clearly very unsettling and terrifying for the Lamonts, they never summered at the house again. Because why the fuck would you? Exactly. You feel unsafe. Why would you? Robert Lamont even refused to sell the property for years. He was kind of like, you know what? We're not going to go there. We're not going to try to unload it. It's just going to be there. Okay. Now, when Robert Lamont died in 1948, the family finally decided that it was time to get rid of this vacant property. There was no reason to maintain it any longer. The next owners were a family named Kiefer. Now, the Kiefers decided they were going to transform this amazing mansion that they got for dirt cheap into a resort. And they built a couple of additional cabins on the property for summer guests, and they renamed it Prairie Moon Lodge. Okay, that sounds like something that hippies would go to. I know. It's like, oh, that's a really lovely name. That sounds beautiful. Yeah. Now It's the next spot for Coachella. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Keepers ended up running this resort through the 1960s, but they also suffered a lot of personal and financial trouble while they owned the property. 
Uh, shortly after getting the Prairie Moon Lodge up and running, Mr. Kiefer died suddenly of a heart attack. His widow, Mrs. Kiefer, continued to run the resort for years with the help of her family. But over the years, as people stopped coming and visiting over the summers, she was forced to sell off acres at a time just to maintain the main houses. Eventually, she was left with only the property where the mansion and the cabins they had built stood. Uh, She tried to revitalize the business by renaming it Summer Wind. Okay. Uh, Mrs. Kiefer. Because she was just a huge fan of uh, fantasy novels. R.R. Martin. Yes. (laughs) Anybody with an R.R. in their name. Uh, She did try to unload the property several times after renaming it. And each time the sale would start to go through, but then the buyer would suddenly run into financial trouble and pull out. Finally, in 1969, Mrs. Kiefer found the right buyers for the property. Uh, It was a young couple named Harold and Ginger Hinshaw. Now, the Hinshaw saw this fabulous mansion and really fell in love with it. Okay. Uh, Ginger kind of says that when she first saw it, she immediately could see them raising their family there and just kind of recreating this, like, glorious, renovating this glorious, like, late Victorian, early 20th century house to its former glory. This is before Ginger went on that three-hour tour, right? It was right after, actually. Oh, okay. (laughs) They finally got off the island. Uh, While Arnold Hinshaw actually owned a construction company, he uh, wasn't totally fully versed in everything that they would need to do to get the house back up to code. So things like electrical, that sort of thing, pouring masonry, that's, that's something he didn't specialize in. Yeah. He's more of a general contractor. Okay. So the couple realized pretty soon after they purchased the house that they'd have to hire additional contractors to complete the full renovation they dreamed of. Uh, Within a couple of months of purchasing it, the Hinshaws had restored enough of the main rooms themselves, however, to move in with their children. And then they started contacting local contractors to help them with the additional wings of the house. Now, this task proved to be much more difficult than they had estimated. And it was mostly due to the property's reputation among local residents. The Hinshaws found that several contractors who seemed really keen on providing an estimate for the jobs they were requesting would suddenly decline the job when the contractors learned that the location was summer winds. Oh, so basically they, they knew of they knew of the reputation. So like they would like there was like an interview of it of Ginger where she was like, yeah, they would be really interested and they were all excited to start the job. And then we would give them our address and they would be like, oh, no, sorry, I can't. I, I actually am booked <laughs> and like decline the job and hang up. Eventually, the Hinshaws were able to find a few contractors who would accept the job. But even then, these contractors would quit after a couple weeks. They would cite things like feeling uncomfortable at the property and say things like their supplies would move from the locations they left them in or even that their tools would be stolen. Damn. Some handy ghosts, you know, just trying to steal all the power tools they can get to. (laughs) I want that wood pile over there. Exactly. Throwing off my ghostly feng shui. Eventually, the Hinshaws were pretty much out of local contractors, and they were left to renovate the rest of the mansion on their own. Uh, As they cleared out several rooms, things started to get weird. In one of the rooms, Ginger discovered the original blueprints of the house in a closet. Okay. Oddly enough, the plans were actually wrapped around a... Human hand. Almost. A Native American peace pipe. Oh. So that's kind of weird. Yeah, that's weird. Um, These blueprints ended up sparking this obsessive desire in Ginger to restore the house back to its original glory. So she wanted everything like the original, even down to the paint color. 
Book two, The Secret of Summer Wind. <laughs> Look for the Summer Wind trilogy coming soon from Outside Horror Show. Meanwhile, uh, the stress of renovations eventually began to wear on the couple, and particularly on Arnold. He was described as always being on edge pretty much ever since they moved into the house. He would uncharacteristically snap at Ginger and the children, and he started developing insomnia. During those restless nights, Arnold would wake up and occupy himself by quietly playing the organ he had purchased just before moving into Summer Wind. It was on the first floor, and he would kind of just like, you know, tinker around with it. So I imagine how uncomfortable and creepy it is for those kids to wake up at like dawn and like dad's downstairs playing the organ again. Yeah. Not very pleasant. Not at all. Speaking of the kids, all three of them dislike the house. They would complain about cold spots and how they felt like something was following them around the house. They would often get punished by their dad, Arnold, for leaving windows open, even though the kids would swear up and down they didn't touch the windows. There was one particular incident that I read about where um, Arnold punished the kids for opening this one window over and over again, even though Ginger herself remembered closing it and told him as much. He got super angry and he just nailed it shut. Even ghosts like cross-ventilation people, just, <laughs> just to tell you. So as the months passed, they also started noticing that the electrical in the house would randomly fizzle out. So they would see lights turn off and on. A lot of their appliances would turn off and on by themselves. Even things like oven would stop working, their heat and their water pump stop working. And then when they would call repairmen out to inspect it, everything would be fine. I was about to say that's called owning a house until you know, got I'm to like, the everything was fine part. That's called owning a house. And I'm sure they had like, yeah, so the repairman would come out and they'd be like, well, let's try it and turn it on. It would work just fine. And they couldn't find anything wrong with it. Wow. So like my computer, every time I call <laughs> IT. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or when you call the cable company and you're like, my internet's out. They're like, okay, we can send someone out. But if they don't find anything wrong, it's going to cost you $50. Ugh, yeah. Worst. Yeah, the worst. So soon the entire family is not only experiencing this uncomfortable feeling of being followed, they're stressed out, they're trying to renovate the house, their appliances and crap's breaking all the time. Then they start noticing odd flickering lights around the house and see shadows moving out the corner of their eyes. They feel a very uncomfortable presence that is kind of haunting around certain hallways of the mansion. Okay. They described it as they would walk down the hallway and it would feel like someone was walking behind them, but there'd be nobody there. I don't like that. Yep. And then our other least favorite thing started, the whispering. Oh, great. Yay. The Hinshaws said that at this point they would hear like soft whispering coming from empty rooms or from like shaded corners in the house. Um, Yeah. Fucking creepy. this whisper. (laughs) I'm never going to dance again. (laughs) So, like I said before, the Hinshaws are still going through their renovation and they're making these weird discoveries. And other, particularly the gruesome discovery, was something that happened when Arnold was working in one of the mansion's closets. So he was trying to refinish the woodwork in the closet. And in the back of this particular closet he was working on, it had a built-in set of drawers. Okay. He pulled them out and he noticed that there appeared to be a crawl space behind the drawers. And Gacy was inside. (laughs) Okay. Do you like balloon animals? (laughs) Um, Well, he pulls it out and he's like, I wonder what's back there. And he was physically too large to crawl in there. So he gets one of his daughters, gives her a flashlight and says, crawl back there and see if there's anything in there. 
So she does. And after a few moments, he hears his daughter let out a blood curdling scream and hustle out of the crawl space, completely terrified. Uh Oh, I mean, I don't like crawl spaces to begin with. I know claustrophobia, right? Yeah. Well, his daughter says, I saw a human skull with some dark hair and other part of bodies back there, daddy. And he kind of leans back and he, he can sort of see it too. Great. Now the weird thing about this story, and I, I almost question it's, it's, uh, veracity yeah is that i couldn't find anything where the hinshaws directly told this story in interviews it was something that was like kind of like referenced in other materials yeah um so i almost wonder if this is something that was added to the legend about the house later because there's nothing about them calling the police or pulling the body out or anything like that this was in the crawl space yeah in the crawl space okay then first of all it is gacy's cross crawl space (laughs) and um second of all then it would seem like the previous owners were murderers or something. Yes. Because yes. Not, just... not a kindly old widow. No. <laughs> so I don't know so much about that particular incident about the skull and the crawl space, but there are some other incidents that the Hinshaw spoke of directly in interviews that I was able to find. Both the family and guests of theirs who came to the mansion would sometimes see an apparition of a woman. She would be pacing in front of the French doors that led to the dining room, and if you approached, she would disappear. Huh. Um, the way they described it, it would be like you'd be walking and you just see somebody pacing and you see a woman pacing, you turn, she'd be gone. She's probably on the phone because that's what I do when I'm on the phone. <laughs> yes, I'll hold. For eternity. <laughs> and then one other incident that I found is um, something that happened to Arnold. One day he was leaving the mansion and as he starts to head towards his car in the driveway, he sees flames burst from the windows of his car. He rushes over and like grabs the hose, puts the fire out. And when he gets into the car to see what the hell caused it, there's no visible discernible source, but what's the fire to the car? Wow. It's just his seats burnt up. Wow. So I'm like, that's super weird. That's weird. And uh, a lot of sources said that this was sort of a triggering incident for Arnold's anxiety. And well, yeah, yeah, it, it kind of turned his anxiety and insomnia up to 11. Okay. So he, he has my level now. Yeah. So he's barely sleeping anymore, uh, and he starts just playing his organ all hours of the night. And he's getting louder and louder with it, like playing the same songs over and over again. And they're like these really dark dirge, like funeral dirges that he's playing. And it basically is preventing Ginger and the children from sleeping. It gets to the point where like he would get so loud and into it that Ginger would like come down and yell at him to stop because it was three in the morning (laughs) and she had things to do the next day. Quit playing with your organ. Exactly. I mean, your organ. Stop playing with your organ. Uh, Eventually, Arnold ends up having a full nervous breakdown, and he's forced to check into a hospital to recover. Uh, Just before Arnold goes to the hospital, though, however, Ginger attempts to take her own life while at Uh the house. Yeah. She's basically suffering from this intense depression because not only is she not sleeping and she's stressed out about this reno, but her husband is slowly slipping into insanity. And all those years on the island having to deal with Gilligan. I mean, I mean honestly, how does one woman cope? I know. But um, she tries to take her own life. Uh, luckily, she was not successful and she was able to recover. Arnold goes off to the hospital and she packs up her kids and leaves Summerwind and moves in with her mother in Grenton, Wisconsin. And shortly afterwards, her and Arnold end up divorcing. Oh, wow. Uh, eventually, Ginger remarries and has, from what I could tell from interviews, a pretty normal, happy, happy life with her new husband. That's good. Um, but she never goes back to Summerwind again. 
as she probably shouldn't. I agree. I think it's a good move on her part. So after a couple years, the property is still vacant. Ginger's father, a man named Raymond Bobber. Bobber? Bobber. Or Bober. B-O-B-E-R. I don't know. It could be either one. I like Bobber. I think Bobber sounds funnier. He decides that he's going to buy this house that his daughter doesn't want to live in anymore and remodel it into, you guessed it, a bread and breakfast. Ooh. So he hires workers again, and he doesn't actually live at the house, but he puts like a trailer on the property where he and his son, who's helping with the reno, live. And he brings in like some workers, and again, the same complaints start happening. The workers will be there for a couple weeks, then they will just quit because they're uncomfortable with like the presence in the house. Or because their tools are stolen or their supplies are stolen. They so just, they're at it again. Yeah, they're at it again. It gets to the point where around town, nobody wants to work at Summerwind anymore because it's just too much of a hassle and it's creepy and haunted. Exactly. So Bobber also begins to renovate the house himself. And then he starts experiencing even more weirdness. He says that he would go in and take measurements of the rooms in the house, trying to figure out what he can make into a guest room, how big he'd need to have the dining room to ser- serve the number of guests he wanted to have, that sort of thing. And he would basically like measure the, the width and length of a room, and the next day he'd come back and measure it again and it'd be different. Oh, great. Okay, that's like, I don't know if you ever read the book House of Leaves. Yeah, it's like temporal yeah. displacement. But like, you know that's Poe's uh, brother. brother. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he ends up getting those blueprints that Ginger found in the closet and he starts comparing the rooms and none of the measurements matter, match up to it. They don't, what yeah. the hell is going on on certain days though? And then he'll go back and measure it and it'll match. Oh, I mean, that's normal. Some things are just bigger on Tuesday than they were on Monday. Like my stress level. Then there was one kind of capstone incident that sort of brought Bobber's renovation to a, a sudden end. One day it's raining pretty heavily and rain ends up soaking the master bedroom through an open window and it leaks into the hallway. Bobber sends his son up to close the window and mop up the water. Now, as his son, who is also named Ray, is mopping up the bedroom, he closes the window, starts mopping up the bedroom. He goes out to the hallway to finish cleaning. And as he's cleaning the hallway, he's just mopping and mopping and mopping down the hallway. And he turns around and the hallway looks much longer than it was when he started working. Like the dreams that everyone has. Yes, like the dreams everyone has. He ends up finally looking up and going back to the master bedroom and he sees that the window's open again. So he's like, what the fuck? That's the worst. And he's like, I have to mop this freaking bedroom again because this window popped up. And so he goes back to the window, locks it, starts mopping up again. And suddenly hears someone call his name. Uh-oh. And he's like, "Uh, who's there? Dad? Nothing. Then he goes back to mopping. And he hears someone say his name even more clearly, almost like they're right behind him. Oh, no. Okay, get out of the house. Just get out now. And when he turns, he suddenly hears two gunshots from downstairs. What? So Ray races downstairs where he finds he's all alone in the house. There's no one there. He enters the kitchen and he smells what he says is reminiscent of smoking gunpowder in the air. Damn. Okay. Oh, wait. I know what this is. Then he kind of freaks out because he heard gunshots in the house and leaves. And he never sets foot back in the house again. There were that some, was a replay from when yeah, probably. Um, he shot the ghost. Yeah, when Lamont shot at the ghost. Yeah. Probably. Now, the interesting thing is that I read some more um, 
tales about what happened to Ray afterwards, and he was apparently pretty traumatized from this incident. Oh shit! I mean, I, I can see it, but um, some of the stories were a little over the top, though, where it's like he did like hypnosis and regression, and like he would talk about how like he had several children, like in a different voice, and he was they were all disappointing, and he had to kill them. It's like just crazy oh, stuff that God. didn't seem like it seemed like again people kind of telling it after the fact yeah sensationalism yeah um because this house has definitely been uh a very well-known haunted location in lando lakes for years okay so bobber senior stops his renovation at this point but he decides you know what so much crazy shit has happened to my family in this house he decides to write a book about it okay i mean at least get rich from your bizarre shit yeah yeah it's 1979 haunted houses are in vogue he writes a book under the pen name Wolfgang von Bobber. <laughs> I like it. And the book was called The Carver Effect, A Paranormal Experience. And in this book, Bobber claims that the house is actually haunted by the spirit of a 17th century explorer named Jonathan Carver. Okay. Now, Jonathan Carver was a real man. He, yeah, that name sounds very familiar. He explored all over the greater like Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan area um, in like the mid-17th century. Okay. Uh, I couldn't find anything that said anything about Carver owning any land in the area, though, specifically, or having anything to do with founding communities in the Lando Lake region. But So it could just be bullshit, but... Yeah. And then the book... Bobber is basically like, this is the main spirit that haunts the house and everything emanates from that. And the book definitely has crazier stories than what I've talked about. And I shied away from incorporating them because a lot of critics and even locals were like, that never happened. Yeah. Yeah. I do the same thing where I'm just like, I'm going to leave this out because it's crazy, but I don't think it's real. Like that's where it talks more about his son having, being like possibly possessed by a demon in the house. And it's like, well... It's interesting because the son, there's many interviews, even with Ginger, where she's like, my brother doesn't talk about it at all. So I kind of question whether that was just like, you know, made up for the sake of his book, because his book is presented very much as like that fine line between like what actually happened and fantasy and fantasy. Yeah. So and that's pretty normal, too. Um, There is a story that I'm going to do when we get to whatever state it's in, I forget which one, but it's very much like that where someone wrote a book about their experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, this seems a bit much. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing though, about this book by Wolfgang von Bobber, um, my second favorite pen name of all time. Oh, absolutely. Right after Rocky Flintstone. <laughs> so the important thing about this book is that it did generate a lot of publicity. All of a sudden, it put Summer Wind on the map, so much so that it actually led to coverage in Life magazine. In a 1980 photo essay in the magazine, they included Summer Wind among the, quote, terrifying tales of nine haunted houses. And apparently everything they reported on were basically supernatural tales that were only corroborated by Bobber's book. So they picked all the best salacious stuff from his book, and that's what ended up in the magazine. Okay. So by 1985... Lando Lake officials are kind of at the point where they need to take care of this because it's now become a blighted property and they really wanted to demolish the mansion, mostly because 
Bobber, who still owns it, has done nothing with it. And it's kind of become like that place where like, you know, teenagers go. Oh, yeah. Let's go get drunk at this crazy exactly. place. And the house still has like things in it. So like furniture in it. Like there's a couple stories I read of like people who grew up in the area where they'd be like, yeah, we grabbed like we went to this house. Yeah, we yeah. went to some beers. We broke in. We There's like huge billiard room in the basement. We play pool and like drink. So the town officials were like, we have to do something because eventually something's going to get out of hand. Someone's going to get hurt or they're going to like start a fire and burn down part of like the woods there. We just need to take care of this. So they petitioned to have the property declared blighted and demolish the mansion. Unfortunately, the attempt fails, but it kind of sparks Bobber into putting the property on the market. In 1986, the property was purchased um, by its current owners, who still own the property to this day, they live in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Okay. Now, in 1988, a severe thunderstorm rolled over the West Bay Lake. And during the storm, Summerwind was struck by lightning. And that lightning ended up starting a fire. And the fire burnt the entire structure to the ground, leaving only the stone chimneys, part of a terrace, and the stone foundation. What? Well, I guess you kind of said this in the beginning. But yeah, it's all burned I had down. forgotten about it until now. Surprise! So basically, this beautiful old house gets burnt to the ground by a freak nature storm. There is some speculation that there may have been some arson at play um, or like maybe some, again, some local kids started a fire and they didn't put out correctly. But most where are those kids supposed to drink now? You've left them without a home to drink in. (laughs) They can get a pontoon boat and drink on a lake like the rest of us. (laughs) God damn it. But yeah. So again, if you are ever in West Bay Lake or Orlando Lakes. Um, you can see it, but it's still private property. So okay. you can't so trip don't trespass. Don't trespass. But uh, yeah, so Eden, what are your thoughts? Like I said, it kind of has a little bit of an Amityville flavor to it. Yeah, but... I could see that. Um, it's definitely creepy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like I said, it had a little bit of a House of Leaves thing going on with like the rooms changing in size. Yeah, It's very strange. And it, unfortunately, it burned down, so I can't investigate it. <laughs> but I would love to have investigated that place. There are some folks who have done investigations there, like oh, cool. at the foundation, things like that. Um, I didn't find anything earth shattering about their investigations. It yeah. was mostly just about the history of the mansion. Um, there are lots of photos of it online in its heyday and also in its more dilapidated late 20th century appearance before it burnt down. Um, it looks cool. Yeah, it's I'll kind definitely of, give it a look. Kind of sad. Yeah. But um, my sources for this week were Mental Floss, Wikipedia. Uh, this delightful book by Devin Bell called Haunted Summerwind, A Ghostly History of a Wisconsin Mansion. Occultmuseum.com, cultofweird.com, only in your state. Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and WXPR.org. Well, thank you for that, Nicole. That was a good story. I liked it. Yeah. Nice counterpoint to the uh, Dahmer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was depressing. It always is. But thank God we are done with this episode now because mm-hmm. I need to just take an emotional break. Time to watch bed knobs and broomsticks and get centered. Exactly. <laughs> All right, gang. If you enjoyed today's episode, if you have any feedback or you just want to say hi, you can do that in a multitude of ways. You can reach out to us directly via email. We are roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can visit our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram as Roadside Horror Show and on Twitter at Roadside Horror. We would like to thank Yoxbox Designs for our amazing logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro music. 
And until next time, gang, creep, creep on, creeping on. Creepin on. on.